Hi, my name is Emily, and this is Small Lake City, a podcast. So today I'm chatting up Dave Brimley. Dave is a third-generation glassbender, or neon artist. His work can be found all over Salt Lake City, the Wasatch front and back, and beyond. It's not every day you meet someone like Dave. He's been called a Utah original, and he's one of my favorite native Utahns. He also has some interesting pioneer roots that we'll get into later. I met Dave when I was working at Alchemy Coffee shortly after I moved to Utah. He's a regular there, a face everyone is delighted to see when he walks through the door. We called him Apple Turnover Dave to distinguish him from all of the other Daves. There was End of the Bar Dave, Restaurant Dave, Flat White Dave, Professor Dave, and Protein Shake Dave. I could have forgotten one. There are so many Daves. He told me, maybe the first time I met him, that he has a daughter named Emily, so we became fast friends. But really, he is one of the kindest and most decent and interesting people I know. Totally chill, unique, and authentic. Hi, Dave. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, Emily. Pleasure to do this. I'm I'm glad to tell you about my story and Hopefully it's interesting to people. We'll see. <laughs> I think it will be. Let's start with the neon business. Brimley Brothers Neon, your business, was started by your grandfather, Leonard Brimley, and his brother in 1932. Incidentally, that's the same year Radio City Music Hall, the Cathedral of Neon, opened. Um, and you were born right in the middle of the golden age of neon, which was the 40s and 50s. So how did you get into the business, and did you always know that that was what you wanted to do? Well, I, I got into it basically because I was born with it, and it was always fascinating to me. Actually, they started in about 1930. They didn't add neon to their business until about 32, or maybe even 33. But um, like you say, being born into the, the family, I was always around neon, it's, one of the earliest things I remember when I was a child, there was a neon Santa Claus that my dad had made that was hanging outside my bedroom window. And I remember looking at that thing and just staring at the colors. It was so fascinating to me. And it, that, that's my weakness is colored lights. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if it was genetic or something happened before I was born, but I started seeing the colored light and I couldn't resist it. And, um, of course I, I grew up in the, in the business, learned it from my dad. He learned it from his dad and, so on and so forth, but um, I was always interested in, in life, and I, I did other things. I went to school in um, pre-med for a while, and majored in music for a while, and then I thought, well, I just want to be a, a pilot or something, and I did that. I, I took flight training for a while, and then I thought, you know, I, I really miss the neon business, and I really love it, so I just gravitated right back into it, so here I am. That's really cool. Well, by the time you were in your 20s, Neon had kind of fallen out of favor. So were you, um, during that time, taking flight lessons and studying other things? Well, Neon has, has gone in and out of favor, but it's always been there. background. In the 60s and 70s, um, lighted plastic signs became very popular. But there's what we call channel letters. And inside of those individual letters, you see them all over the malls and the, and the stores now still. There are individually lighted singular letters that spell out whatever it is. But 
during all of that time, the lighting inside of those was always neon. And because of its flexibility and it could be bent in the shape of letters so easily, they just put neon behind plastic faces in the letter cans. That's where it went. Um, there was still an awful lot of what we call border tubing or outline tubing that was going on through those years. And so our neon shop, my grandfather and my dad were, were always busy making neon, uh, even in the slow times when it wasn't as popular and they were building plastic signs, plastic letters and so on. They were still doing a lot of neon. It just has its ups and downs and popularity like a lot of things, but it, it seems to cycle back. It always comes back. Yeah. Well, and it seems like a very chemistry and math heavy commercial art. How does it how does it work? What's the process? Well, it, it is chemistry and physics um, based. There's very little math, thank goodness, because I hate math. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, neon is is really basically with the elements that are around us right now. And what what we're doing basically is just trapping. Um, lightning in a bottle, we might say, or the, the northern lights, maybe, is the inside of a tube. And what it is is ionization of rare gas. And that's, that's a complicated statement. Basically, when rare gases are exposed to high voltage or energy sources of some sort, they, they give off light and the ionization what happens when the electricity causes the, the, the molecules to pop off ions of light. And as they travel back and forth, they're attracted to positive and negative charges and they give off uh, a light. And every rare gas has its own color. It's called spec- spectroscopy. Spectro- it's easy for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> the spectrograph of, of, the, of the rare gases is very individual. Um, neon always fluoresces the same color. It's always red. And argon is always a very light purple color, and so on and so forth. Krypton, xenon, helium, all of these gases will fluoresce if they're exposed or ionized when they're exposed to to a voltage source. And um, the gases are produced, I mean, you're breathing neon all the time. You're breathing argon all the time as you breathe oxygen. It's part of the air. It's around us, and by distilling the air, uh, putting air into a pressurized situation where they cool it down completely, uh, down to the lowest temperatures, it's like anything else. It's a gas, and it condenses to a liquid as it gets colder, and then it goes condenses to a solid even below that. But each gas condenses out at a different temperature. So by studying those temperatures, they know that at a certain temperature, they're just getting nothing but neon gas that's condensing, and they, they draw it off and purify it, and so on. And that's how that's how the gases are, are derived from the atmosphere. So all we're doing is using the atmosphere of the Earth that's around us, and we're using electricity, which is in the air that's around us, a part of our natural world, and we're combining the two, and it creates light. And we just put that light in a tube or a bottle, and there you have it. That's really true. basic science. <laughs> very, well, very simple. And do you actually make the glass tubes, or do you? Is that something that you order? Um, the glass tubes are always have always been made, uh, even in the early days, by glass manufacturers. It was a, a different process, something that wasn't connected. But the guys that invented neon, they they had um, 
the need to make glass fixtures to, to contain the gas. So they did a lot of lamp work and so on. But we buy all of our tubing on its length of, of standard glass tubing. And it's all, all different kinds of, of sizes and colors of glass. And the glass itself can be colored. And nowadays it comes with a pre, for neon, it comes with a pre-installed powder phosphorus coating inside of the tube, which will be a, a rare earth phosphor that will fluoresce in a different color. Like if it's, we can make greens and blues and purples and all kinds of shades, yellows and oranges by putting phosphorus powders inside the tube. And then when we expose it or when we light it up, the, those Phosphors also contribute to the color of the final color of the tube. Uh, in the days when my grandfather started, they used to have to put the powder in themselves because there wasn't really a neon industry in those days. But we stopped doing that because it's um, now factory available with powders pre-coated inside the tubes. Huh. And so uh, back when your grandfather was working, I read somewhere that there's a drop of mercury that's added to create some of the colors um, would mm-hmm. your grandfather have been working with the mercury? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, it's like fluorescent tubes that are in the ceiling. The, the most commercial institutions have fluorescent lights up in the ceiling. They also have a droplet of mercury inside. And what that does, mercury is a vapor. As it's a vapor, it's a metallic vapor. And it really boosts the light output for the, the dimmer gas, uh, which is argon, which is the purplish uh, one I was telling you about before. All of our blue tubes, our green tubes, our yellow tubes, uh, turquoise, aqua, white tubes, they all have a little tiny droplet of mercury inside because we use argon inside those. And argon needs a boost. And so we put a drop of mercury inside and they become really bright. As the mercury vaporizes, it gets warm inside the tube and the mercury vapor. Um, as well-known mercury vapor lamps are very bright, and it has the same effect inside a neon tube. Um, our red tubes, which are the actual neon gas, don't have any mercury at all. <clears throat> uh, just just the argon one. Right. So looking at, there was a recent write-up in the Tribune about the cotton bottom sign that you restored, um, and you had mm-hmm. posted a bunch of images of the process, and it looked like a really cool project, but it looked like you, you know, you you restore the sign and you put it all together in the shop, and then you have to take it all apart and install everything on site, um, which, well, oh, go ahead. Well, yes and no. Sometimes we don't take it apart, but uh, in the case of the cotton bottom, we use the rare glass color. It's called um, Casino Gold, and the glass itself is a yellow gold color. And it's very rare and expensive, so we didn't want to accidentally break any of it while we were installing. So that's, right. that's the reason we put it on after the sign was up. We thought, let's take it all off, and when we get the sign up, we'll go put it back on, because that way we save, you know, the damage that could happen quite easily during an installation. But um, usually, most signs go up with the neon on them, and use installers and um, ourselves, we're experienced enough in installing signs that we very rarely break it to. But it does happen, sadly to say, but we're all human. Is it is it a little yeah. dangerous, the installation, just because you're working with electricity, like such high voltage? 
No, there's there's nothing that's um, that's turned on until the site's completed, and then of course we stand back and turn it on. But uh, <laughs> we work with we work with high voltage quite a bit because these are operated by high voltage. They're most neon signs run anywhere from five thousand to fifteen thousand volt wow. inside that sign, and uh, it's, it's stepped up from one hundred and ten or one hundred and twenty volts by a neon transformer. It's very high voltage, which is like the amount of water in a river, but it's very low amperage. And the amperage is like the current or how fast that water is moving. So um, you can swim in a big river and not necessarily drown, but if you jump in a big river that's rolling very fast and violently, like going over Niagara Falls, you're in trouble. That's the <laughs> difference between, between amperage and voltage. We use very high voltage but very low amperage, hmm. which makes it it's still dangerous, but I've been shocked by 15,000 volts hundreds of times, literally. And I'm still here to talk, talk about it, but it's mostly because the voltage um, doesn't have the amperage behind it to really hurt you. <laughs> That's good. But we're still, we're still careful, and it'll still knock you, knock you around if you accidentally touch it. So. Wow. <laughs> Well, sometimes yeah. um, I've seen a lot of the signs that you've done around Salt Lake, sometimes not being aware that there are signs that you've done. I think the the sign at the Salt Lake City Cemetery was a sign that your grandfather did, but you you mentioned that you've repaired it many times. Um, yeah. But you also have projects in other cities. And last year I remember seeing at Nike's headquarters in Portland, the sign that was installed that says, I think it's in white, and it says, you can't be serious, as a nod to um, John McEnroe. That looks like a really yeah, fun project. It, it was. It was three three stories tall, the, the phrase, you cannot be serious, with a big exclamation point. Um, that's what John McEnroe used to scream at the, the judges all the time, but um, from it's a it's a, about twelve feet off the ground where it starts. It goes up three stories inside of the atrium of the John McEnroe Building up in Portland in Nike's headquarters, and it's um, interesting that we we get this kind of work because we we kind of have a reputation for doing these things, and um, we we've done work all over the, the country for for Nike and for other companies. Um, New York City, we've done two installations in New York City, uh, one right down in uh, the village or Soho area. Um, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, Atlanta, Georgia, and so on and so forth. They, they call us and, and we'll fabricate the glass for the job. We'll pack it up in boxes and we'll put it in a, a, a dedicated van and have it driven out to the location, then we fly out there and we, we unpack it ourselves. Nobody else touches it but us uh, when it goes into the van, and then if we're there on time, we can take it out, too, but we definitely unpack it. And that way we're able to, to move all this glass around without breaking any. So far, we've, we've been really lucky. We haven't broken any glass on any any of these installations all over the country. But it's, it's, it's very fun work, interesting work, because... Um, they're challenging. These, these jobs are always challenged. And um, it's, it's just great to have the, the experience, you know, being able to do that. So, yeah, we do. We have work all over the place. 
It does, it does seem like every project would be different. I remember seeing last year, last January, up at Sundance, you had um, in, little installations. I, I mean, I only saw a few of them, but what I saw was um, small pieces at all the different venues that they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've done a lot of work at Sundance for quite a few years, uh, mostly for people like Stella Artois. Uh, different breweries, uh, different pop-up locations, again, Nike, and for some of the electronics producers that have, they, they all have a little uh, lounge, pop-up lounge up there. There's one we do for Tau, uh, which is a nightclub system in Las Vegas and New York City, and they do a Sundance pop-up every year. And... Uh, that type of thing. It's, it's, it's again, fun work. It makes January a busy time for us, which is nice. <laughs> I remember we were trying to connect back then and we were crossing paths through Parley's Canyon <laughs> going opposite directions. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, and so the neon business or your business isn't just neon. You also do graphic design work and you did all of the signage at public for those people who in Salt Lake are familiar with that. Um, and I know, I think your son-in-law, uh, Ryan, who works with you, he, his background was graphic design before he got into neon, I think. Yeah, he, he has a fine arts degree, um, and, uh, he's a very good painter, but when he married my daughter, um, he was planning on, you know, being a practicing artist and making his money that way, but he came to our neon shop and saw what we were doing there and how you know, hands-on creative it was, and he wanted to try it, and he had a natural talent for it, so he's doing almost all of our glass bending now. I am able to concentrate more on design and layout, installation, and, and assembly of things. That There's a lot more than just bending the glass that goes into it, especially the design work and, and that type of thing, and Ryan is really good at what he does, and it does take talent. It does you, you have to be creative, and you have to be able to have good eye-hand coordination and be able to draw what your mind sees. <laughs> yeah. Put it that way. If it's in your brain and you can't draw it, then you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have an all-time favorite project? Oh, I don't know. I think one of the favorites of the last few years was probably an installation we did for Air Jordan in Oak City. And that was down in what they call a um, a pop-up again. This is for Nike and Air Jordan. And um, we took all our stuff and got into this building, which they gutted, and put their own stuff in there, uh, all the decorations of the walls, the lighting, and everything. And they have a, a pop-up store for Air Jordan shoes for three days, and then it's gone. And so we put it all in and took it all out, but it was really really nice it was all red glass everything was red all of their lighting inside was red and the projections on the walls were white letters on on red walls our neon was all white and uh, so the white and the red really made this place an entry and it was beautiful it was a lot of fun and it really looked good we had flashing um neon that said band three times band 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 because they had banned the Air Jordan shoes from the NBA because of their effectiveness. So on so forth. But, um, also, in the graphics end of it, in the sign production end, I, I did a lot of work for Walt Disney 
Productions, Walt Disney Studios, and their challenges were really interesting, too, and probably one of my favorite projects. And that's been some years now, but we did all of the new signs that they, when they remodeled the Fantasyland in, in California, we built all of the ride signs and a lot of the shop signs, Mad Hatter signs, and the Casey Jr. Circus Train ride signs, and all that stuff. And they're all handcrafted. They're all handmade, hand-wood-carved, uh, hand-painted signs. And then they had us do a lot more in Epcot in Florida when they were building that, Disney World and Epcot down there. But those challenges was really, were really fun and interesting, too, because they would come up with things that we would just go, most people would throw their hands up, but we would say, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> wow. That's really cool. So Yeah, well, I, 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 well, I used to be proud that we never told anybody it couldn't be done. I would always say, yeah, we'll figure out a way to do that. <laughs> right, right. And it, it usually works. Yeah. So it sounds like you're really busy with um, with work do you ever have time to create personal work yeah i've i've got quite a few uh, sculptures in in my shop and sold a number of them out and and so on but they're just things that as as you're daydreaming that come into your mind and you think i've got to build that so we end up building them and uh there's some interesting things that i've done that are sculpture in nature and, and more they're not commercial you know advertising art at all <clears throat> but they're just more related to things that I, I want to build. I've uh, I've been doing art shows the last few years, but because of the COVID thing this year, there's no art shows to do, so I haven't done any. But I've done the Helper Arts Festival uh, a number of times, and the Salt Lake the, in the Salt Lake we have um, the one that's uh, oh, I can't even remember the name of it. <laughs> But it's down at the Gallivan Center every year, and we, I've done that one a couple of times. It's just fun. Well, you'll, um, you'll I, dis I display my art there and hopefully sell some. Yeah, you'll have to keep me posted. I remember when you went down to Helper, but I didn't make it down there, and it's on my list of places to go um, once things are a little bit more open. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd love to see your work. Um, I was looking at um, neon and contemporary art and um, curious what, if you have any favorite artists who work with neon, but I was remembering Dan Flavin, who's considered the father of neon art. And he was an influence of Robert Irwin and James Terrell and other artists who explore light and space and color. Um, another mm -hmm. one I like is uh, Glenn Ligone, who has a lot of text-based works um, exploring American history and culture and society. Um, but yeah, it's, his, it's, his is, is big cultural stuff, yeah. Yeah, but it's really, it's really mm -hmm. prevalent. I mean, anyone who's been to a, a contemporary or a modern art museum has seen neon hanging on the walls. Well, I've, I've always liked Lily Lackage. She's, she's uh, I don't know if you've seen her quite famous Mona Lisa neon that she did a number of years back. And um, she's really creative in the stuff that she does. And she was the director at the Museum of Neon Art in Los Angeles for a while, but I don't know if that's still the case now. Um, there's a fellow by the name of Michael Fleckner, who is a, a really nice... His work is, is really interesting. He's got, he has little neon cameras that he carries around on his shirt, you know, and 
Uh, <laughs> he does fish that, sw- that swim through the air, neon sharks, all kinds of things that are really interesting. They're not not just a, a neon shape that has really no meaning, but a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, Rudy Stern was a neon artist in New York years ago. He's since passed on, but his legacy is a, a company called Let There Be Neon, which is still working in New York, and we work with them quite often, back and forth. We've done a lot of installation of their work in Salt Lake. Um, as far as that goes, uh, I just like producing my own stuff, too, and I you know, I, I don't follow other artists trying to do what, what they do. I appreciate their work and so on, but uh, those two are probably my favorite, two or three of my favorite. Uh-huh. That's cool. One of the things that I find interesting about uh, the neon sign business is that it intersects advertising, architecture, and art and design. Um, does the, the business itself follow a similar arc as the advertising industry? Um, it it does, when especially when you're heavily involved in new construction and new restaurants and so on and so forth. That stuff has slowed down an awful lot right now, as you can imagine. Um, we we do have to keep up on trends and so on, and, and new products, especially for architectural use. Um, it, it to me, it's not my big interest, but uh, we we do still do a lot of new stuff, and it, it has to be you know what the designer wants. They ask for things that are more contemporary, usually. But uh, right now, my favorite concentration is on restoration of antique signs, yeah. and. We've probably done more of that lately than almost anything else right now. There are two or three new restaurants in Salt Lake, believe it or not, that are scheduled to open pretty soon. There, there are still people out there building new places and opening new stuff, and um, we're we're there for them and we're we're doing the work. But restorations to me is is a, a great thing in my interest realm because of my history, right? In the on, and I love fixing up old signs and replacing them and repainting them and putting new neon, like the cotton bottom that you mentioned. Yeah. And places like that. Do you know anything about, um, there's a sign on 21st South between probably 8th East and 9th, it's probably around 9th East. It's it's, a, it's like a popcorn business. Yeah. Uh, do, yeah. You, do you know new, what's going on? New crisp on? popcorn. Is that going to be restored mm-hmm. soon? <laughs> well, that's all up to. There's a very sweet lady by this Mrs. Sorensen that owns that place, and um, she's a widow, and she doesn't really have the money, as far as I know, to get the sign restored. We've given her uh, a price to restore it at two different points, and also um, there's been offers from um, Sugar House City Council and so on to help with that, and. There are also grants available now from the cities that um, she, she could probably look into. But it's like anything else, you know. If I was a person of age like that and had this thing hanging over me, I there'd be a point where I probably just wouldn't do it. <laughs> right, right. So it gets gets to be too much. But I hope it. Does. I hope to see it restored someday. Um, it's there's not- a little bit of neon on it, but not too much. It's mostly a fluorescent sign with light bulbs, but it's still very classic. Yeah, and um, yeah, we we we've got our eye on it. We we will restore it if she wants to. Yeah, I hope she does. I hope something happens. I I remember you guys did the um that bowling alley sign 
that had been, I think, hit by a drunk driver and um, they managed to raise funds to have it restored, which I thought was really nice. Is that the bond, the bondwood you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah, we, we didn't do any work on that. They, uh, they didn't know who it was that built it when it was, it was damaged by a truck that hit it and it damaged it quite severely. But, um, that sign did have quite a bit of neon on it, and now I don't know if there's any left. They replaced a lot of it with LEDs and um, a lighted plastic sign on the bottom, but they did retain the look of the sign, and most of the stuff on top, like the, the giant lumpy bowling ball and bowling pin, are still there. <laughs> I thought... My you... uncle, my, oh, your uncle, my did uncle it... made those. I thought... Well, I thought that you guys did restore that and get it back up. No, no, that was Yesco that did it, and they 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 did a good job, but uh, we would have done it in neon, <laughs> right? And and so, but it still looks it's still a uh, classic sign, and I'm glad to see it's there because it's one of the few of my grandfather and my dad's uh, signs that they built is still up. There's a few around here and there, but that's that was one of the, the good ones. So and, it was. Um, your your um so your your grandfather and your great uncle started the business, but then your dad and your uncle both worked in it as well. Yeah, my dad, my grandfather, and his brother started the business, and um, then all their children, a good part of them, worked in it one time or another. But my dad and his younger brother, uh, and their cousin, who was the son of my grandfather's brother, so. <laughs> So it's always been Brimley's and their brothers that have run the bit that business since since they first started, and um, it's uh, it's still right now. Emily is I was the third generation. My daughter is running our business, been the business in, and she's fourth. And my grandson Oscar is working with us now, and he's the fifth generation. So oh, good. Still, still involved. I didn't know about Oscar. Yeah, he's 20 years old, and he he likes working with us, and we're restoring the Grove Market sign over on Main Street, uh, just uh, north of 21st South, the ones that have the really good deli sandwiches, and that that's one that Oscar's been doing a lot of work on, so he's learning how to do that kind of stuff, and he knows it. That's exciting. I read somewhere yeah. you said that it takes three years to apprentice as a glass bender. Well, it can take longer or less. Um, Ryan picked it up fairly quickly because he has uh, artistic talent, and he had uh, he's a great painter, and he has uh, also a great musician. He can play numerous instruments, and uh, he, he, in his little band, they play. Um, he plays the guitar. He plays the foot drum, the bass drum, and he plays a hi hat cymbal with his other foot. So he's playing three different instruments the same time along with singing. Wow. <laughs> so he's a multitasker of the best kind. So, yeah, he's he's learned it quickly, um, which was still a couple of years. I mean, it, I'm not saying that he learned it like in a, a couple of weeks or months. But for most people, two to three years, it takes at least that long until their work is really something that you can count on, you know, something that you know you're not going to have a problem with or it's not going to crack or or not look right, and uh, so it does take some time. It's like 
playing a violin, a violin in a bar or in Carnegie Hall. You know, there's a big difference. Right. <laughs> so, and so. Well, I yeah. last, um, well, I remember there was one time uh, not long after I met you, I was working at Alchemy and I saw you roll up in your truck, which is sort of a chalkboard black and on the doors are painted um, like an advertisement for your business. I think it says something like mm -hmm. uh, Brimley Brothers Neon, but it, it, it looks like a neon sign and the colors really pop. And I, I noticed yeah. it. And when you came in, I asked you if you were related to Wilford Brimley, the actor, and yeah. you were like, yeah, we're second cousins. <laughs> He's much older yeah. than you are. And he did, he passed away last week, but um, do you have any good yeah. stories about him? Uh, not really. He, he was, um, we, we knew Wilford. He and my dad uh, were actually first cousins and, um, they were, fairly close and kept in, in touch with each other, but um, he they their family lived up in Morton County uh, when we were growing up, so we saw him fairly rarely, and um, at a, a point, he was younger than my dad, but older than me, so he was between the two of us in his age, and um, at, at, at the time when his fame became so much that he, he moved to Hollywood, moved to California for a while and still kept properties here in, in Utah, but it was very rare to see him after that. Hmm. And uh, mostly, you know, he he was a very straightforward person, even even in life. You know, he was he was a lot. He didn't he didn't act, and he claimed he says I'm not an actor. He says I'm just I'm j I'm just doing the this guy, whoever it is that he was doing. He was he was that that was him. You know, right. <laughs> It was a, a Wilford Brimley version of, of whoever he was portraying, and it was just, it was always Wilford, always him. His characters were, were all the same, <laughs> <laughs> kind of gruff, and, and you know, uh, but he was uh, he was uh, the lovable blowhard. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Well, and he yeah. it seems like he was a real cowboy. Um, yeah, he was. He he was he was from Morgan County, and he was a wrangler, and. Um, he ran away from home at a younger age and, and became a, a wrangler and, a, you know, worked in the rodeos and so on, things like that. And, and his movie break, first, first one that I know of, um, it was the Robert Redford movie, Electric Horseman, and they hired him. He was driving a truck. He was driving the truck that hauled the horses, I believe, and they saw him there and offered him a, a small role as the, as the horse wrangler and truck driver. <laughs> <laughs> Which he was doing anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I was watching yeah. last weekend, um, I was watching an interview that he did at some actors conference and the interviewer asked him if he ever studies um, to get into a role and Wilford seemed to not really, I'm sure he understood what the guy was asking, but he kind of acted like he didn't really get what he was saying or wasn't really interested. <laughs> And um, yeah. the the interviewer gave the example. He said, "Well, if you're if you're gonna play a rancher, do you go out and live on a ranch for a week?" And uh, something to that effect. And Wilford was like, "That's what I do anyway." Yeah, <laughs> it was really. Yeah. He, he was definitely a little curmudgeon-y, but I like his straightforwardness. Um, yeah, he, and, like, he was. Mm -hmm. He was very authentic. 
but um yeah that that's part of my family's traits my uncle and my grandfather and my dad they were all straightforward guys there wasn't a the clown among them. <laughs> well, I think you have that too. I think you have this very interesting mix of um, artist, cowboy, and, and maybe cowboy is not the right term, but this um, like Western, authentic, real thing going on, but also like a, very, a seriousness, which I didn't know before we have been speaking that you were pre-med long ago. So that kind of shed some light on your seriousness and your mm-hmm. sort of methodical work. Um, but speaking of your family, you also told me once a long time ago that you have a great, great, I can't remember how many greats, grandfather, who was in one of the first groups of pioneers to emigrate to Utah. And you mentioned to me that he was a hunter um, which I had never thought it totally makes sense that there would be hunters in the group when they're walking for three months, but, um, so that they can eat. But, um, you also yeah. compared him to OP Rockwell, which for people who don't know, Orrin Porter Rockwell is the name of the street that is in front of the prison in Draper. Um, and he was also the the um, bodyguard for Joseph Smith. So it, some people right. would even describe him as an assassin, which I don't I haven't studied him that mm-hmm. intensely. But he's buried in Salt Lake City Cemetery and people often leave things on his headstone. And, and I know there are a lot of people who think of him as a hero. Um, but, I, but I think of him that he may have been kind of a frightening character. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm totally intrigued by this and how your relative was similar to that. Well, they they were actually uh, com- contemporaries. They they were both hunters for Brigham Young's uh, advance party. But uh, Porter Rockwell um, was I wouldn't call him an assassin so much as maybe a regulator. He was there was there was there was really no law enforcement in those days. There wasn't a police department, <laughs> especially on the the cross trail. You know the immigration train that was that they were all involved in. But they did have to have some people that were, you know, able to handle situations or go after thieves or whatever. But he and he and my it was my great great grandfather, just just two greats. My he and uh, Porter Rockwell were hunters, and and they so they had had to hunt together quite often. They were quite competitive, and they used to give each other a hard time quite a bit in <laughs> in both of their diaries. They're they're mentioned. That's funny. <laughs> and so uh, having some you know a little back and forth as to you know <laughs> calling each other out more or less for being honest or dishonest or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they yeah they were and. Uh, that was my uh and on my mother's family that's um my granddad was uh, a wonderful guy he was uh but that was his his grandfather so it's just just two generations back or three i guess yeah. it's funny that my great great grandfather was a 1847 uh pioneer and there are people who nowadays to show you the distance between generations a lot there's there are some kids now who actually know their great grandparents and maybe even their great great grandparents. You know, as a as a 
person in life, but he's been gone for ages. Wow, right. <laughs> so, but he was still my great great grandfather. It's kind of it's kind of interesting, but is he buried? Yeah, his name was. L- oh, what's that? Well, what was his name? Is Lewis Lewis Barney? And is he buried Lewis. in the Salt Lake City Cemetery? No, he he moved to Mancos, Colorado, and that's where he died at the age of ninety-two or three. And he's he's buried in Mancos, Colorado, which is um, a very small town. He's buried in a pioneer cemetery there. Um, but he, before he moved there, he lived in Monroe, in central Utah. And there are Barneys all over central Utah that are all related to me somehow or another. And we're all second, third cousins or whatever, you know. <laughs> Well, Barney, hundreds of them. <laughs> Barney's a great Western name too. You got Barney yeah. and Brimley. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and so yeah. do you? Do you? Ha- you have pioneer roots on both sides of your family. Yeah, my my Brimley family came more in the 1860s, um, but they they were again um, Mormon converts from from. Uh, British Isles, and they came over, immigrated in the 1860s, and that was uh, where, where Wilford comes from. Uh, his father was one of my great-grandfather's brothers, so they came from that, you know, the, the elf cousins not too far back. Right. <laughs> it gets really confusing <laughs> unless you see it all it, lay it out. It, it can be. Um. <laughs> Well, and so my last question, you, you, since you've lived uh, here your whole life, you must be familiar with the Small Lake City phenomenon. Um, do you have mm-hmm. any good Small Lake City stories you'd like to share? Oh, you know, I, I haven't thought about that much. Um, I, I, I don't know if, there, if there's much, but I, I do know that my grandparents did leave a mark um, in the ninth, what they call, well, they, they call it the fifth ward district or the granary area of Salt Lake. And uh, it's over by Fisher Brewing Company. You know where that is. And yeah. there's a big, there's a big old church there that's right around the corner from Fisher. And, um, my great grandfather Brimley built that and was in the, that, that ward and sang in the choir and all that stuff. And, and they owned a, a family grocery store that was right next door to Fisher, where their location is. Of course, it's long gone now. That's where my grandfather, grandfather and all his brothers and sisters were born, in a little house right there next to Fisher on 8 South. Wow. Um, so that that's where half of my family comes from. And the, the Blarney family, they're also from right around the Salt Lake. My mother was born and raised in Sugar House, and my dad... Um, his family at that time lived over on Main Street, and they went to South High School, and he was a student body president of South High, and my mother fell in love with him and him with her, and the rest is history. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> so they're all Salt Lake people and all from close from the same neighborhood, so that's kind of small. <laughs> and the shop, the your grandfather's shop, was it on State Street originally? Originally, it was on 1325 South State Street. Um, now it's just south of the Coachman's Pancake House restaurant there. And that was a, a house that my grandmother lived in after 
my great-grandmother lived in after my great-grandfather had passed away. And so my grand, my grandfather and his brother set up the neon shop in the back of her house. Wow. And eventually, as she became more invalid, they moved her into a bedroom and they took over the rest of the house and <laughs> put their office in the living room and they put their neon planned in some of the bedrooms. And <laughs> wow. It's quite, quite a story. Yeah, it's a grassroots business. Yeah, I love it. I love the how much history is tied into it, and that it's still a family business. Um, yeah, yeah. The the you mentioned the the graphics on my truck. That representation of the sign, the Brimley Neon Sign Company. That's a a representation, or that's my version or a copy of the sign that they had in front of their building in the nineteen. 30s and 40s oh wow so, and it's on the, also on the front of my building now that sign that i have over my entrance to my shop is um the same design that they had on their sign shop in the 1930s that's really cool well, well that's, that's where that design came from <laughs> huh i love it um I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me um, and answer my questions and uh, share your story. Yeah. Um, and I hope I'll see you again sometime soon. Maybe I'll uh, go over to Alchemy and hope to see you or yeah. something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. And I'll, yeah. keep, I'll keep an eye out for the sign that Oscar's working on. Yeah, the Grove Market, that's an interesting story. If you have time, I'll, yeah. I'll just tell you. But the Grove Market has been in existence since 1947 over there on Main Street. They have wonderful sandwiches, and it's run by the Savas family. And um, we worked on their sign a number of times, and I told him, I, I said, Jim, you know, you need to take that down and let's do a restoration on it because uh, we have to keep going over and repairing it. And it's time it had a makeover. And... So we took it down and got it into the shop, and we started taking the metal off of the sign so that we could repaint it and get the dents out of it and so on and so forth. And underneath the metal, which was covering this sign, we found the original sign that was built in 1947. And it was hidden inside of this 1960s version of the Grove Market sign, which was really um, more space-age design, you know, from the mm -hmm. 60s. Yeah. Mid-century design. It was it was um, it was questionable design, <laughs> <laughs> but inside of that sixty sign was the nineteen forty-seven sign, and it's a beautiful Art Deco um, classic neon sign that was inside there and, and covered. So we uncovered it, and I told Jim, I said, "What if somebody had found your your father's?" 1932 Packard or whatever in a garage, and they told you that you could have it and have it restored. What would you do? He'd say, "Oh, I'd restore." I said, "Well, that's what you're going to have to do with this sign." Wow! Because <laughs> your father's original sign was inside of that older, that newer sign that you had up there, and so that's the one we've restored. And um, it's ready to go back up. We're probably going to install it on Tuesday. Oh wow! Well, I might stalk yep. you and show up over there and capture it because that would be fun yep yeah it's a beautiful sign it's really classic and wonderful that we found it because otherwise nobody's seen that sign that was inside there since 1964 was yeah. when they covered it with metal from the other 
you know, the, the other project, I'll, which was kind of funny. I'll have to ask my mom's cousins if they remember that sign from the 40s. Yeah. Well, they would have been young kids in the late 40s, but... Um, yeah. You also... Well, even the owner didn't didn't remember what it looked like, because it was since 64 since he'd seen it, and he couldn't remember what the old sign looked like. Wow, <laughs> yeah. You also found treasures in the cotton bottom sign. Oh, <laughs> Well, we thought it was full of bullet holes, but it was actually arrows, uh, hunting arrows, that someone had been target practicing their archery skills on the <laughs> rabbit. Right. On the sign, and there's um, there the, the reason, it's like an archaeological, archaeological project, because you can tell what makes things when you're looking at it. Uh, uh, bullets will go all the way through a sign. They'll come uh, have an entrance and an exit. But all the holes on this sign only had entrances. None of them went through the other side, even the ones that came from the other side of the sign. They were all uh, entering holes only. And some of them were funny, had a funny shape to them, like a cross or a T Mm -hmm. in the middle of it. And at the top of the sign, there's a hunting, so it's it's called a broadhead. It's a hunting arrow. And uh, the metal tip from that broadhead is still lodged in the top of the sign up there <laughs> and so we left it in place it's still visible on the the, the sign i love that so a, a bit of history of the the hunting arrows were being shot at the rabbit on the sign it's <laughs> wonderful yeah that's that's uh the fun of doing that is finding out what was done before and how they did it you know well, yeah, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you too, Emily. Well, good. I'm glad. Um, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah, um, I'll send you some photos of some of my sculptural work. So Ooh, I would love that. Too. And I'll add, okay. um, when I post this, I'll add um, links to some of the things that we talked about and um, the pictures that you sent me already. And yeah, I look mm-hmm. forward to seeing some of your work and for um, seeing you again someday soon <laughs> yes <laughs> all right well take care enjoy the rest of your evening okay well thanks emily it's been a pleasure